you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Mark 10. Mark 10, 17 to 31. We're continuing in our series of uh, texts that are often misunderstood or misquoted. And today there are three aspects of this text that I think have been misunderstood. Verse 21, some have interpreted incorrectly that if you give to the poor, you have earned your way into heaven. That's not at all what the text says. Verse 25, when it says it is easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, some have suggested that there was a gate called the eye of the needle. We'll talk about that. And then in verse 31, there's some discussion as to... uh, exactly what a hundredfold means. So those are kind of the questions as we look through the text. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we look at your inspired and errant word, and we exegetically work through one of your passages, we pray, Lord, that we would not just go to the passage so that we might have more head knowledge, but that we would truly be transformed. You tell us so clearly that we are not to be hearers of the word only, but to be doers as well. And fathers, we talk about idolatry. It might be that some of us have not yet received Christ because an idol is in our life that needs to be removed. It also might be, Father, that some of us who truly are born again have allowed ideologies, philosophies, politic, possession, relationship, something we own, something we desire to be more important than you. And so help us to address that idol in our life. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Over a hundred years had passed The British East India Company had ceased to exist. Another 90 years had passed under British Raj or sovereignty. The date was August 15th, 1947. On the subcontinent, the Indian subcontinent, August 15th, 1947 should have been a day of celebration. Freedom should be an inalienable right, but it had not been on that subcontinent. But on that day, freedom reigned. Freedom ruled. And we were going to have Muslims in the north, in Pakistan and northwest, and Hindus in the southeast in India. But if you know what happened on that date and the couple weeks that followed, 14 million individuals found themselves on the wrong side, in the wrong country, with the wrong faith system. So 14 million individuals, some going north, some going south, collided at the border. Historians are unsure exactly the death toll. It was north of one million, south of two million individuals 
died in the carnage when Muslims went north and Hindus went south. A day that should have been a day of celebration became several weeks or longer period of time of utter carnage. There were some Christ followers there. One's name was Cliff Robinson. He normally served in Calcutta on the Bay of Bengal. He was there and he was in a Hindu village when a number of Mohammedans, young Muslims, surrounded the village and went house to house to house. They pulled Hindus out of their houses and murdered them in cold blood. Then they turned on a street that he knew had four houses of Christ followers. In those days, it wasn't hard to tell because a number of Christ followers would paint large red crosses on their door as if to say, we're neither Muslim nor Hindu. Please leave us out of this violence. They got to the first house and a heated debate broke out. They decided to leave him alone. They went to the second and there was no debate. They left him alone. At the fourth, they left them alone. But when they got to that third house with a red cross, a really heated, animated discussion took place. And they finally broke down the door, dragged out the Christ followers and murdered them in cold blood. In the aftermath, when things had settled down, Cliff Robinson wanted to know what had happened. He had seen horrific Muslims die, Hindus die, and, and now some Christ followers. Why did these Mohammedans leave the first and the second and the fourth house and attack just the third? Why their murders? He discovered that they were artisans, they were craftsmen, and for a living, they carved Hindu idols. They had allowed money to overshadow their, their values and the result was violence. And these monotheistic Muslims said, it doesn't matter what that cross says. These people are not monotheistic. They're idolaters and they deserve to die. Today's text is about idolatry. And as I said in the prayer, an idol is more than something crafted out of metal or stone. An idol is anything that becomes more important in our life than Jesus Christ. An idol can be a recreation. It can be a hobby. It can be a job. It can be a person. It can be a relationship. It can be a desire for a relationship we don't have, but we want, and we are just consumed by that more than we are consumed by Christ. An idol can come not only prior to knowing Christ, it can come after knowing Christ, not at the loss of salvation. I don't believe you can lose salvation, but an idol can get in the way of our relationship with God and can hurt that relationship, and we all need to do examination of our lives. Is there a relationship of an item, an ideology, a politic, a philosophy? Is there something in our life more important to us than Jesus Christ? That is an idol. 
Today we're going to be introduced to a rich young ruler, and his idol was gold. His God was gold, and it got in the way with his relationship with Jesus Christ. Mark 10, starting in verse 17. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him. The man asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Isn't that beautiful? He's looking at an idolater. He's looking at us. And yet his love still shines through. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Almost immediately, we learn quite a bit about this rich young ruler, don't we? The first thing I notice is he's spiritual. I think he has been in the audience when Jesus has preached the earlier section of Mark, and he runs up to Jesus, and he bows before Jesus in reverence. And as this spiritual being, he's not a know-it-all. He thinks there's still things for him to learn. And so he says, what must I do, teacher, to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? I'm interested in spiritual things. If you and I were to turn to the parallel passage in Luke 18, 18, he's called an archon. It's the word for ruler, but in some sections, it's a technical word. I think here it actually refers to a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had political authority and they had a religious authority. We have some parallels in the United States. I wonder what would happen if I asked you, how many members of Congress are clergy? I wonder what your response might be. Well, in the House of Representatives, four men and one woman, Cori Bush, are clergy. And we have two senators who are clergy. So we actually have seven individuals today that are like this individual, this archon, with both political and religious authority. He is a seeker. He wants to know something about God. He's also very successful in life. We ought to admire this kind of, sec, uh, this kind of success, this kind of pursuing of life. He has been industrious in his job. He's a ruler. He's a hard worker. That's what he is. And he's also a seeker. He's a guy who wants to know something about Jesus. In addition, he's moral. I love what he says. He says, Jesus, what must I do? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. <laughs> don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't desire what belongs to another or defraud others. Don't lie. Honor your father and mother. And he says, teacher, I have kept all of these from my youth, from bar, my bar mitzvah, from my 13th birthday on. I've checked the boxes. I know these things. 
I've honored them. Is there something else? And Jesus said, oh yeah, there's one more thing. Get rid of the idol. He said, go and sell all you have and give to the poor and then follow me. Get rid of the idol so you can see me. Follow me and then you will have riches in heaven. So we've really answered our first question in verse 21. He is not saved because he participates in feed my starving children. We ought to participate, but as an act of worship, not a act of, man, I do this, I do that in order to get to heaven. No, as believers, we have received Christ as Savior. We have recognized that we are sinners in need of saving. And having recognized that we are sinners in need of saving, having confessed, agreed with God, we accept what Jesus did on the cross, his death as a payment of our sin, his resurrection as evidence after uh, life after the grave. We believe in him, receive him as Savior and Lord. And then as an act of worship, we begin to serve the Lord and we participate in things like feed my starving children. Salvation doesn't come from caring for the poor, but having been saved, we are to care for the least of these because God told us to do so. So far, we've learned that he's spiritual, he's wealthy, he's respectable. This is a guy that we want to be around, but he lacked one thing. Verse 21, you lacked one thing. You know that word, by the way. It's the same word, hysteri, found in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and all have fallen short, all have lacked. What have we lacked? The glory of God. What is he lacking? The glory of God in his life. That's our word. It's exactly the same word as Romans 3.23. He is lacking the glory of God. He's lacking a relationship with the living God. So Jesus says, get rid of the idol. The idol is taking your eyes off of me. Get rid of what is in your life that is causing you to focus on it rather than me and then come and follow me. That's what Jesus says. His God was gold and our God must be Jesus Christ. As I thought about the rich young ruler, I thought of a man named Lee Atwater. Now I thought in the last service I was in a few minutes ago in Traditions, Because of the average age, they all would know Lee Atwater. They just kind of looked at me like they didn't. But this is a much smarter crowd. So you probably know Lee Atwater, especially if you're political and you're a little bit older. You know that he was the pit bull. That was his nickname of the Republican Party. He was actually the chairman of the Republican National Committee. He was an advisor to Ronald Reagan And he orchestrated George Bush's election in 1988. He was at a fundraiser for a senator and he collapsed. He was only 39 years old. He collapsed. He was rushed to the hospital and they found an inoperable brain tumor. He would die within one year. Now, if you know anything about Lee Atwater you know that he was not a nice guy. In fact, he was a nasty man. He was a cruel man 
who left a wake of people in his path. That's what he was. And after he was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor, he came to Jesus Christ. He hinted at it several times publicly, but then he declared it to the Chicago Tribune. Now, if I'm going to declare I come to Christ, I might choose Christianity today, not the Chicago Tribune. But he said very clearly, I am a Christian. I have been saved by Jesus Christ. And for the first time in my life, I don't hate anyone. And you know what he did with the last months of his life? He visited all the people he had run over. He called all the people. He wrote letters. He publicly apologized to politicians on both sides of the aisle. He had been transformed in Jesus Christ. And it now showed. It bore fruit. He lived out what we looked at last week in James 2, 14 to 26. That faith without works is dead. He had faith and he then had works as a love response, a worship response to the Lord. And now he is in heaven. One of his last interviews, in fact, it was his last, was the Life magazine. It was all about Christ, but I'm going to read a paragraph that wasn't about Christ, but you'll get a feel for what he's like. My illness helped me to see what was missing in society, and it was missing in me. A little heart, a lot of brotherhood. The 80s were about acquiring I know, because I acquired more wealth, more power, more prestige than most. He was our rich, rich, young ruler. But you can still acquire all of that and feel empty. It took a deadly illness to put me eye to eye with the truth, which he identified very clearly elsewhere as Jesus. But it is the truth that the country, caught up in its ruthless ambitions and moral decay, can learn on my dime. Our future leaders must be made to speak to the spiritual vacuum at the heart of American society, this tumor of the soul. Mr. Atwater is now in heaven, and he is with the Lord because he removed the idol from his life, and he saw Jesus. You know what's remarkable about him? He didn't switch political parties. He didn't switch his political values. He wasn't poor. He was very wealthy. But he moved the idols away and he saw Jesus. And that's what the text is telling us to do. Whatever idols are in our life, maybe you know Christ, but you have allowed, I have allowed, we have allowed things to be more important in our lives than Jesus. Move the idol away. See Jesus. Live for Jesus. Love Jesus. Maybe you don't know Jesus. And today you're being confronted by biblical truth. And Jesus loved you and loves you. And he's urging you to move the idol aside. And see him, the beauty of Jesus. Want the beauty of Jesus. Believe in the beauty of Jesus. Accept him as Savior and Lord. That's what happened to this man named Lee Atwater. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 and following. He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. 
And then he went on and said, the second greatest commandment is likened unto the first, love your neighbor as yourself. But that first commandment is what verse 21 is saying. He said to the rich young ruler, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And then you will have riches in heaven. And that's what he's urging us to do. Unbeliever, see Jesus, believe. Believer, move the idols, re-see Jesus and follow him. Make him the Lord of our lives. For this young ruler, he needed to remove the God of gold. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other or he hate the one and love the other. No one can serve both God and money. And then he goes on in the text and he encourages us to see Jesus. Let me read verses 23 to 27. It says this. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, I don't know what you think of the text, but it ought to alarm you. It ought to alarm me. At least nine and a half of 10 of us, probably 10 out of 10 in this room are rich. Historically, we are wealthier than most people in the world. Historically, we are wealthier than most people who have preceded us in this world. And Jesus said how difficult it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he said, it is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so commentators ever since, we've been expanding the needle, we've been buttering up that camel, and we've been shoving him through. It helps us out. And then in the ninth century AD, a scribe journalistically created a gate called the Eye of the Needle. He said it was in the old city of Jerusalem. It's not there. It never was there. In fact, such a gate actually undermines Jesus's text. You can go there with a tourist. You don't need to come up to me afterwards. You can tell me, yes, I was with the tour, and he showed me the Eye of the Needle. You're wrong, Jeff. No, no, it wasn't there. What you're actually seeing is a gate that they would lower like the church of the nativity so somebody couldn't ride into a building. They had to get off their horse. They're all over the Middle East. But that's not the eye of the needle. Why are they astonished? Why do they believe it's impossible? Because it is. It's impossible for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. But if we had a four-foot gate and this camel could get on its knees and crawl through, the implication is that you and I on our own could somehow get to heaven. And that would undermine the text. We 
can't get to heaven on our own. That's the point of the text. No camel can get through the eye of a needle. No man, woman, or child, wealthy, middle class, poor, or destitute. No one can get to the heavens except through faith in Christ. That's the point. That's why the disciples are astonished. And they say, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it is impossible. The camel, it is impossible. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's the incarnation. That's God becoming man. That's Jesus going to the cross. That's God paying the penalty of sin, which is death, and then conquering death and rising on the third day, that if by faith we would believe in Christ, receive him as Savior and Lord, we would be given eternal life. And so our second question is answered. No, there was not any gate called the eye of the needle. A scribe gave it to us journalistically in the ninth century A.D., Jesus alone is the only means of salvation. Let's finish the passage, 28 to 31. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Love Peter, he speaks for me. Remember what I did, Jesus. Pat me on the back, Jesus. What do you got for me, Jesus? And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, There is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and lands with persecution in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Here we have Peter and he's all in it for himself and he kind of says, Jesus... And we've done a lot. What's in it for us? And Jesus said, let me tell you some good news. Nothing you do for me with the right motive and attitude. Nothing you do for me will be forgotten by the Lord. So what does it mean when he says that there will be a hundredfold? Well, I'll tell you what I think it doesn't mean first. I don't think it means that just prior to passing the offering plates, I read this passage and say, I hope you're not going to skimp today because if you skimp, that hundredfold won't be much. I don't think that's how Jesus intended the text. I think he's looking at life and he's saying, you know, if you live for me, you might lose some relationships. You might lose some friends. Let's suppose you have three friends And they're doing all the wrong things and you won't do those things because you honor the Lord more than your friend and you serve for an audience of one, which is Jesus, not for an audience of many. And you lose those three friends. I think God is saying, hey, I got you. When you get to heaven, I'm giving you 300 of friends and they're really gonna be good ones. And I think of the missionary who leaves the lands and the houses and the brothers and sisters and the father and the mother And the children, and and Jesus says, you know, what an unbelievable sacrifice. Unbelievable what you're doing for the kingdom. And and I see it. I remember it. And what you do for me, I've taken note. But I always think it's what we do with the right attitude and the right motive. You remember Sir Walter Raleigh? You remember that uh, 
there is that story. We don't know for sure if it's true, but Queen Elizabeth gets out of a carriage and it's raining and he takes his cloak off and he puts it on the ground so that she could walk on dry ground. He understood that what you do for royalty comes back to you a hundredfold. Now, Sir Walter Raleigh wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. You know that if he did that event, he still got in trouble and he still ended up in the Tower of London in prison under Elizabeth. And then she let him go, probably because of that coat thing. And then he got in trouble with James I and ended up in the Tower of London and he released him. He got in trouble a third time, went to the Tower of London and he lost his head. Not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But the first act was good. He understood that what he did for royalty is not forgotten. We're serving royalty. And when we serve with the right action, the right motive, the right attitude, the Lord remembers, the Lord sees, and the Lord puts it in his journal. Well, that's part one of a two-part answer. Because he went on to say that there's also going to be persecution. And we're starting to see that in our land, are we not? Probably for the first time in our lives, we're, we're seeing persecution as we stand for righteousness with humility, with grace, not with hubris and a holier-than-thou attitude, but with a grace and a gentleness. If we take a stand for righteousness, there's heavy pushback. If we say that marriage is between one man and one woman, heavy pushback. If we say that life matters outside the womb and in the womb, and that what is in the womb is not a woman's body, which it's not. Every DNA cell of a woman is one DNA type, and every DNA cell of what's developing in her womb is a different DNA. She is a host. It's not her body. If we say that gender blockers for children is child abuse. Lots of pushback, but it is child abuse. If we say that Genesis 1.27 declares that we are male and female, and he's made us male and female in his imago Dei, in his image, lots of pushback. If we say that salvation is only by faith in Jesus Christ, and in no other, lots of pushback. So there will be persecution. But as we stand with a graciousness and a humility, not anger, and we stand for what is right, the Lord notices and he returns a hundredfold what we've endured for his kingdom in eternity. Some of you have done that so well. Well done, good and faithful servant. Continue to serve him well. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for all of these passages we get to look at. Not just so that we understand them a little bit better, but that as act of worship, we live them out because you are worthy. Help us to honor you, serve you, live for you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.